somewhere in a remote, uncharted region of a planet called Earth. Greetings, my friends. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. Tales from the Silent Planet. Hello and welcome to Tales from the Silent Planet. I am one of your hosts, Daniel Schultz. And I am your other host, Nick Wells. So, Nick, what have you been reading this week? Daniel, so I actually just finished a uh, series on Audible by Professor Michael D.C. Drought. Uh, it's called um, The Modern Scholar. It's a uh, it's one book in a it's one class in a series, um, and this one was about grammar. And I initially bought it to brush up. For NaNoWriMo, however, uh, I kind of had a drop out due to just having a busy schedule and a few real life things popping up. But uh, I got to finish that finally, and I've learned a few cool things about about the English language and about grammar. It wasn't really what I expected, um, but I did learn a few few helpful things that I think helped me with my and. Uh, on top of that, I did get to finish the uh, first book in the series. It's uh, the Legion book by Brandon Brandon Sanderson, which we're going to be talking about later in the episode. And I started into Legion Skin Deep, the second book. So uh, that's kind of what I've been up to this week. How about you? Well, this week I've been kind of all over the map. I finished Stephen King's book, The Dead Zone. And then I was kind of struggling to find another book to read and i decided to read one of the books that the publisher bain offers for free you can download a bunch of their ebooks for free usually it's the first or second book in a particular series so that they kind of try to hook you so that you'll buy more books in that series and this book is called 1632 and it is about a city from west virginia that is transported to the time frame of the Thirty Years' War in the early 1600s. So, in, in the year 1632, to be specific. So, it is... Uh, I've enjoyed it so far, and it's really interesting. It's kind of been on my mind lately, and I was... So, I've been enjoying that. And then today, I actually went and saw the new movie in the Harry Potter universe, the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. So that's what I've been up to this week as far as what I've been consuming. Nice. Yeah, so... You, the, didn't, uh, you didn't see Doctor Strange, did you? No, I haven't seen Doctor Strange yet. Uh, I've wanted to, but we decided to go see that today. And my wife yeah. really enjoyed it, so I was glad we went to see it. Nice. Yeah, it was it was pretty good. I. It's a, a tone. It's as far as its tone and stuff. It's pretty different from the Harry Potter films, but it was it was good. I, I'm excited to see. It's supposed to be a five film series, which is kind of <laughs> kind of crazy, but. I, I'm excited to see where really? it goes from here. Yeah, it was originally supposed to be a trilogy, like everything is, but then they have expanded that to five movies. So, wow, so it'll be uh, a long time coming before that's through. Yeah, did, but... uh, did she actually? I don't really follow her 
her too much. Did she actually write a book um, by that title, or are these just kind of standalone movies? Well, there is a book by that title, but it's sort of a uh, a shorter work that's a, like written as if it's a textbook that they're using in their classes. So it's not like a a plot, a, you know, it's not like a real heavy plotted book. It's fiction, obviously, because it's not real, but it's there's no plot to it or anything. It's like a textbook. But the film, she actually wrote the screenplay for it. <clears throat> so as far as okay. the story goes and everything, it's what she wanted. Nice. Yeah, it's pretty. it's pretty cool that she was able to command so much control over the film series and the rights to the book as she has a lot of authors that have early success like that don't have that degree of control over their work i was listening to an interview between john grisham and stephen king uh, it was a couple weeks ago when we were reading on writing and I was sort of interested in hearing more about what Stephen King had to say, so I watched this interview between the two of them, and they were talking about film adaptions and how you kind of just let them go out there and then they turn out how they're going to turn out and you usually don't have a lot of control. But because J.K. Rowling was so successful, she was able to keep a huge amount of control. Huh, that's really interesting. I knew Orson Scott Card had also said the same thing in regards to Ender's Game. And, uh, you know, he had a hard time, you know, maintaining some of the integrity for certain parts of the book, uh, depending on who wanted to make the movie. So, yeah, well, it's good that she uh, was able to make it the way she wanted it. So it'll be like the books, hopefully. Well, yeah, but this was one. The Harry Potter book. Yeah. Yeah, they she was able to have final say in the Harry Potter films about like casting and stuff like that, as far as I understand. So yeah, it's, it's interesting okay. now that we're in this, this sort of fantasy Renaissance and science fiction Renaissance in film, where those are the highest grossing films of the day that, uh, it's interesting to see how different things are adapted there is this series uh, that was aired on MTV, the Shannara Chronicles, which are an adaption of the series, the Shannara series by Terry Brooks. And they sort of follow the plot line of the second book, but they're just vastly different. And a lot of the fans of the book series didn't really like them because they... They just thought they were too different. Yeah, well, even like Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, you know, I remember. I remember I watched the first Hobbit movie and I had um, I had read through the Lord of the Rings books. I, I hadn't read through The Hobbit in quite some time since I was a kid. And I saw um, that first Hobbit movie and I was like, oh, man, I love this. I need to go read the book. And so I went and I read the book and I was like, there's not an orc in this book. And uh, yet the main the main army of bad guys were orcs. And, um, you know, there were just quite a few things about it that were very different. And I understand why they did it. But uh, even if you look at those movies, um, my my favorite parts personally were taken out of the movie from the book where. um, where you have uh, Bilbo, do they call does he call the spiders Addercop? I think. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. He's kind of like dancing in the trees after all the dwarves have been strung up by the spiders, and and you know he has this dialogue with them. He also has this really awesome dialogue with Smog uh, that they more omitted from the movie. Beyond, um, where Gandalf brings them in slowly with his story, kind of piquing Bjorn's interest, knowing that, you know, Bjorn wouldn't have taken them all in at the same time. And 
literally like those were my favorite parts of the book and all of them were omitted from from the movie and so um yeah the um it's a good uh, you know it's awesome that jk rowling actually gets to have have a lot of say in those in those movies they'll be a lot better for it yeah yeah, I, I'm interested to see just how a lot of these uh, adaptions of things will go forward. I I remember when I was in, I think I was in middle school, and one of my favorite book, one of my favorite books is called My Side of the Mountain, and uh, it's my favorite children's book. And we watched the adaption of it in class, and I was just so offended by the adaption because it was... it. So in, in the in the book, basically, this kid runs away to the Catskill Mountains in order to just live off the land because he wants to, just because he thinks that, you know, he just wants to. And I thought that was really cool. That was a really cool idea to me, to be able to just do something like that and not really have a, a reason for it other than, hey, I want to do it. And in the movie, they gave him a reason of why he went out there to the Catskills, and it is the stupidest reason of anything ever. He, he wants to do experiments on algae. And he's always talking about my algae experiments, my algae experiments. And it just got so much on my nerves. And I, I was just so offended by it. And I will never watch that. And I always recommend to people when I recommend the book uh, that that they not watch the film they just avoid it altogether right yeah i'll have to i'll have to go back and read that i don't think i've ever i don't think i've ever even heard of it to be honest with you so having two kids uh that'd be it'd be a good book to read yeah it's really good we just i just bought a, a copy of it today as a christmas gift for my nieces and nephews so Cool. It is, uh, yeah, I recommend that. I've read that there's like a, two sequels, I think, and they're they're all right, but not as good as that first one. That first one is perfect, just the way it is. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. So, what are you going to read next? That is uh, that is the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> Well, I think that um, I'm actually going to pick up Cat's Cradle. Um, I'm not going to use a credit for it. I actually found that uh, the local library system where I live allows you to actually check out audiobooks online. Nice. And they do have Kurt. It's, yeah, they do have Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle. Um, we did have one person recommend that, so I'm going to check that out. Uh, so we can, so I can touch on it a bit. I don't know if that'll be the book we actually talk about because I don't think uh, Cat's Cradle is really sci-fi or fiction. We'll see. But um, I figured that was a good place to go next since it was a recommendation, and we definitely want to take those uh, and listen to them if we can. So probably uh, Kurt Vonnegut's Cat's Cradle after in deep. Then maybe I'll jump into. Well, I'm already into the the. Is it the Way of Kings? Is that what it is? Yes. Way of Kings. So I'm I'm about twelve hours into that book. I think I got uh, thirty more hours to go. <laughs> I just man up and finish that book. So it's a little bit different. It's it's more slow paced than uh, Sanderson's books like Legion or is it um, the Mistborn? Yes. Trilogy. Or, yeah. So it's the one you had recommended. So this one, for those of you that aren't familiar with Sanderson, Brand, or, um, Daniel can go more into that. But um, basically, it's it's the book that he's making. It, it's the series he's making into 10 books. So he he's going to great lengths to do a lot of world building. And it just has kind of a slower feel to the first book, apparently. Uh, what would you say about that? Well, I think it it's definitely... Uh, a slower paced book that deals with these characters and situations and the the situations don't really uh, go to they don't really 
develop uh, as fast as his other books. He has this this thing called the the Sanderson Avalanche that happens in other books. And basically, these books build up to this climax, and then there's this huge drop-off where all the plot things come together, and they call it the Sanderson Avalanche. And this is not really one of those books, because although the ending of the book does have some resolution to uh, two of the plot lines, at least some big resolution, it's, it's not quite as as uh, developed, I don't think. But like you said, he's developing the world. He's sort of setting up this cataclysmic event and this and uh, these mysteries and things. And I, I enjoyed it while I as I got into the book. But like you, had had trouble getting into it when I first picked it up. I got I had trouble getting into it. And then after I read a bunch of other Sanderson books, then I was able to pick it up again and really enjoy it because I had the the sort of confidence in him that he would, that it would pay off. And I think it did. Nice. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I got really discouraged. I was like, I've heard all these great things about Brandon Sanderson and that, and uh, um, that was the first book I had started. And I was just like, I don't know if I can get through this. Um, But, you know, just having gone through Legion really, really, has made me want to read more of his stuff immediately. So, so let's let's talk more about about Legion since you did read it this last week, and I had read it, I think twice before, and then I've read the sequel, Legion: Skin Deep, as well. I actually have the sort of limited edition, you know, signed and everything copies, nice. and I have never even read through them. I've only listened to the audiobooks, but they sort of sit on the shelf and look pretty. But nice. the uh, the first thing I want to comment on is the audiobook narrator, Oliver Wyman, who you informed me is actually one of the most well-respected narrators on Audible right now. Yeah, I was looking through for uh, their sales yesterday and I saw his name on uh, some of the more highly rated narrators and they go through the books that those narrators have done. And uh, Oliver Wyman was one of those narrators, which is not surprising if you've heard his work. He is uh, phenomenal, uh, whether it's a, you know, a certain type of male voice or even his female voices are quite, quite, very, quite good, you know, regardless. Mm-hmm. So I think with, especially with this book, it's, important that his voices are varied like they're very distinguishable from each other um and the the story behind this book is that you know the idea is that there is this character Stephen Leeds and he has possibly has uh, multiple personality disorder and he's able to use this to create this personality that he has and he interacts with and that personality will be an expert on certain information. Yeah. So in the book, um, spoiler alert. So if you want to go through this book and experience it on your own before this review, I would uh, jump out now, go check it out. And after that, I would come back and listen to the podcast and hear our thoughts. But uh, Stephen Leeds actually owns a mansion, and I think he is either 42 or 47 rooms in the mansion. And each personality of his gets a room. He has this uh, undiagnosed medical condition. Some people think it is multiple personalities. Other people think it's something entirely new. Uh, even he doesn't really know. But uh, he has all these personalities, and within each personality, you know, is this just wealth of knowledge about certain topics and so he doesn't know everything that they know but he can converse with them and they can tell him things that they know i think the best example of this to kind of give the reader a better picture is when he uh when he gets new he calls them aspects instead of those are like personalities and so he gets a new one called kalyani in the book uh, about halfway through i think and he needed to learn a new language and so he had just read up on, I think, a few books on Hebrew. And then kind of uh, this new aspect, Kalyani, 
showed up and she kind of coached him regarding you know how to speak Hebrew and she translated for him so that was kind of how it works he doesn't know the things that they know but they know it and then they help him with it yeah it's, it's interesting he's this super genius but in order to use all this information he basically has to separate himself into these different uh, different people and I thought that was a really interesting idea and if I remember correctly when Brandon Sanderson actually wrote the first Legion novella as he was on a plane and, I, and he just sort of went through and wrote it pretty much the whole thing on this plane ride and it's not very long, but it is fantastic, I think. Yeah. One of the things that um, one of the main characters who is not one of his personalities, her name is Monica, is she because like nobody really knows what to expect with him. Like there have been articles written about him, but people don't really get it. But when Monica, um, the security woman, uh, he doesn't know too too much about her, but when she uh, starts working with him and they're on the plane to Israel, she uh, she kind of sees him having a conversation. I think with his aspects, and she's like, you know, I I feel like there are multiple conversations going on that I'm not a part of, and he's like, there are. And then I think she, I might be mixing parts up, but at one point in the book, she says, um, you know, my first impression of you before I met you was that you were going to be some you know reclusive genius or what whatever and then she's like but but now i just think you're more of a of, of an average guy who's a mental manager of other people and um i thought that was a really interesting take i think that sanderson has i i think that i think that the perspectives of the people that weren't the main character were really well thought out and they felt real for it mm. yeah i he really, Brandon Sanderson has a way of, of thinking through things, and I don't know where he finds the time when he's <laughs> doing all this writing. I mean, he's written so many books, and he's only been, you know, he hasn't been writing for that long, and, you know, all things considered. And yet he, he thinks thing, through these characters and these worlds so deeply that everyone feels fleshed out. There's hardly ever a character in any of his books that doesn't feel as if they have motivations and a background and that, that doesn't feel fleshed out. And one of the things about Legion that is interesting is that each of these aspects himself has a mental disorder that they display. So each one, like not only does he create these aspects to help him but for some reason they have a mental disorder so like a fig basically a figment of his imagination something isn't real has a mental disorder that he applies to them and that's just sort of another layer of depth that sanderson gives to these uh, you know these characters and uh, it's it's really is a fascinating concept i think yeah and he usually has three specific aspects with him at all times. He has, at least in the books so far, mm -hmm. um, he has JC, who's kind of this, uh, he kind of seems like he's from Jersey or something to me with his accent, at least in the audiobook. But um, he's kind of, he's a, he's a Navy SEAL, an ex-Navy Navy SEAL who uh, kind of protects him and does security for him and just kind of keeps him alert on what's going on around him for survival. And then he has Ivy who helps him – she's kind of like a psychologist, but she helps him read people. Um, kind of like uh, lied to me if you ever saw that show, how he reads micro expressions, things like that. That's kind of what she does on top of being uh, kind of like a psychologist, if you will. And then he has Tobias who is a – basically a historian and a philosopher who just knows vast amounts of information. And then, and then Tobias is the one who has his own personality that is not uh, Tobias. His name is Stan, and he's basically an astronaut that's, like, orbiting the Earth, and he tells them about the weather and uh, other things periodically. So it's, yeah. uh, like you said, it's funny that one of the aspects basically has an, an aspect themselves. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, And I, I was just thinking as you were talking that the idea of – providing a background so you're talking about jc and how 
Stephen has given him a background of being a Navy SEAL. And that's sort of like the author creating a character and putting them into a world, but also making sure that they have this background and this life that they lived before that affects the decisions they're making now. And uh, I thought that was sort of interesting to, as I realized that, that it sort of mirrors what Brandon Sanderson does with his own characters. Yeah. Uh, I hope so. I mean, <laughs> this is really the only book I've gotten through, so I'll take your word for it. But uh, I look forward to seeing more of that. So, yeah. Well, one of the the things that I found funny, which I don't think you've gotten to, but I don't think it's too much of a spoiler, uh, is in the second book, Legion Skin Deep, and someone throws a popsicle at one of the aspects, and in, in order to keep his illusion going, Stephen uh, sees the aspect catch one popsicle, but basically, and he also sees the other popsicle like fall to the ground. And so in his mind, he makes the, the aspect catch it, but he also recognizes that it was no one. No, you know, it doesn't exist. The person doesn't exist. And so, yep. yeah. Yeah, no, I did get to that part. It was, that was really funny. It was Ivy. And like uh, she just kind of watched the other popsicle fall and she was confused um, and kind of like you're saying, you know, how he has to imagine everything. I don't know if you remember from the first book, but his butler, Wilson, I think was his name. He'll um, come out with lemonade for uh, Mr. Leeds and then he'll come out with I think I think they're fake. I don't think they're real drinks. I think they're fake drinks that he uh, basically is accustomed to, you know, kind of handing to them. And and they and he basically puts he basically fills in the gaps between yeah. reality and fantasy internally. So well, yeah, and it just there's so many little things that he and these aren't long books; they're novellas. But there's so many little things that he does to develop these characters. Basically, these characters within a book. So they're not only characters within the book we're reading, but in the world of the book, they're also sort of characters that have been created. But he, like. He does such, it does like a lot of little things like that where they're able to, you know, you mentioned that they each have their own room within the house and there's a cra there's like a crazy aspect, like a really crazy one that he never uses and it just sort of stays in its, in its room all the time and doesn't come out and there's ones that he basically only uses three at a time, like you said, because he can't maintain control over all of them. And, and his brain will, you know, go kind of haywire if he has too many of them. Yeah. And he kind of, I don't know if he gets into it in the second book too much. He, it, there's only two books currently in this, uh, in this series, but um, Ivy, he kind of mentions in the first book that he, he has lost control of them. Uh, some of his aspects before and that he's lost too and you know he said that you know they could turn into nightmares whatever that means so um looking forward to learning more about what happened to the other aspects and uh, maybe even seeing that firsthand in the story yeah and there's a background to his world that's hinted at throughout the books there's a, a maybe a former girlfriend that is talked about and different things that are hinted about what happened in the past. And I think as he'll, he goes forward and writes another one of these, those things will be flushed out and we'll see maybe, uh, probably we'll see him have a breakdown at some point. I don't know if he's going to write a big novel or if he's going to keep doing the novellas, but I'm sure at some point he'll have a breakdown and he'll have to deal with that. At least that's what I would do, but I'm not Brandon Sanderson. So maybe he'll throw us for a curve. Right. Which uh, which was your favorite aspect and why? Uh, I like Tobias. I just think he's sort of comforting and fun, and uh, I, I just like the way that the the uh, the narrator Oliver Wyman does his voice. I thought was was pretty cool. But I think that yeah, I think that he just sort of seemed like one that would be cool to have someone that has this vast amount of information all the time, right at your fingertips. And 
you you just say hey what's the answer to this question and they know right off the bat yeah yeah like you said too uh oliver wyman's narration is just he sounds regal like mm-hmm. the most regal voice i've ever heard in a in an audiobook it's just um maybe that's not the right word but i think it comes close to it anyway um, tobias is cool i like him yeah, and uh, do you have a favorite a favorite one? There are a few that I like. Um, I like all of them really, but uh, I think that JC is my favorite just because I'm. Well, I like to think that I'm practical at least, but um, you know, if I had to, Ivy is very practical. Tobias is very practical, but JC. I mean, I don't really have to worry about you know assassins or anything, but. At the same time, JC is just the guy who likes to shoot and is kind of a little bit wild and crazy, but he would just always be on the lookout for or whatever. And I kind of like that. It'd be like having an imaginary bodyguard following you around all the time. <laughs> yeah, and uh, we already gave a spoiler alert, but let's let's talk about. At least I hope it's in the first book, the uh, the ending where JC where basically Steven has to shoot somebody has to use a gun. And since JC is the aspect that knows about that kind of thing, he knows how to shoot a gun. He knows how to do combat. And he, he basically has to guide Steven's hands and in order for the gun to actually fire, because he can't control it. He can actually shoot because he's fake, but he actually guides his hands to like how he should shoot. And uh, I thought that was pretty interesting that, and I wondered how, how would JC actually help him to actually shoot a gun or do these things because he can't touch a gun. I didn't really know how that was going to work out, but I thought that was sort of a clever little trick to have JC fire the gun, but it actually be Steven. Yeah. And it was interesting. I think it was in the beginning of the second book. It may have been the ending of the first where um, I think Ivy talks to him about that and she's like, you know, you're losing control or, you know, what do you think about the fact that, you know, JC didn't fire the gun, but he basically guided Steven's arms. Mm -hmm. Like he didn't control him, but he basically like moved his arms uh, to where they needed to be to shoot. And, you know, Ivy just kind of makes a point, hey, you know, this, this has never happened before. You know, what was that all about? And he kind of like, he previously acknowledges to himself, but to her, he just kind of, you know, feigned indifference. And he was like, Oh, well, you know, I'm a quick learner, you know, it's no big deal. It's just like anything else. But, um, I don't know. I think there's more to that and maybe he'll flesh that out, you know, any other book. Yeah. And just sort of to, to speculate about what may come. I really hope that it's not something where somehow these aspects are real i really want them to be in his head completely completely like i don't want them to have some sort of um you know tangibleness outside of his brain i don't want them to somehow be you know some sort of fantasy thing where he's able to create beings or something like that i really don't want that to happen i want him to be crazy and i want him to be able to just be so insane that he makes you know 40 different uh, experts on information that he can use to solve crimes. Like, I don't want it to be like that. Do you, what do you think about that? No, I agree with you completely. If, if they t- turned out to be real in the second book, he creates this, um, I don't even know what, what this guy is. I don't remember his name, but, uh, Jace, it's funny because JC, doesn't like to be reminded that he's a hallucination. Um, they're all kind of aware of it, but he doesn't like to talk about it. And so there's this um, aspect created in the second book who basically puts forth this theory that um, they all exist in another world or something or in another timeline. And that in times of need, Stephen is calling upon them for help. And uh, that kind of puts JC at ease. And he's like, yeah, I like this guy. And, um, you know, I don't think that Sanderson's going to go that route. It would very much ruin the book for me. Yeah, I think so too. Unless he made a very very compelling case but i i don't see that happening 
I think the thing that Sanderson has working for him is that the mind is such a such an impressive organ that we don't understand much about. Like we're who knows what we are capable of, you know, our sleeping mind. If you're talking like Patrick Rothfuss or, you know, I've heard that the uh, we only use 10 percent of our brains thing is not true. But who knows what we could do if we could harness more of our mental faculties. And I think that creating multiple personalities to be experts in various fields and then drawing upon them for information is a really is a really smart way to, you know, go about the book. I really like the concept. So just like you said, you know, if they were real, it would really detract from the concept for me. Yeah. And I like you're saying about the brain, the I just think about my own life and there's things that I am an expert in, you know, that I've been trained in, like uh, when I was in the Navy and I did, I was a hospital man and I don't constantly think about doing medical procedures or, or, um, you know, tact military tactics and things like this that I learned about, but if I'm put in a situation where I actually have to apply those things, well, then I do recall that from somewhere in my brain. And so the character in these novellas is actually sort of doing that. But in order to do that, he's compartmentalizing his bases of knowledge into these, these different personalities. And I think that it's, it's not too far from what we do, but we're just not super geniuses that are crazy and have multiple personality disorder or whatever it is. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's a cool concept and I, I really, really like it. You know, if something were to change it kind of out of the blue in a book, it just, it'd be, it wouldn't be the same series anymore. So. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think he'll do that. He's not, you know, M. Night Shyamalan, where he's going to suddenly it's going to be some stupid twist that you're like, I didn't really need this. I think yeah. it'll be I think it'll just play out the way it's been played out. And I, if I remember correctly, in the second book, J.C. St- sort of believes that. But it's it's clear that that's not the case as far as I remember. But it's been a while since I read it. Read it. I really should have gone back and listened to these to these this week but i forgot what we were going to be talking about this week until you reminded me today and so i didn't have as much time to look over them as i wanted yeah it at least as far as where i am i'm just so you all have a heads up i know daniel said they were quite short the first book is two hours long and audible the second book is like four hours so again very quick reads you could probably get through either one in a day um, and honestly, he reads kind of slow. So I listen to it at 1.5 mm. times the speed anyway. So I'm getting it through, getting through it a lot faster. So yeah, and, probably do the same. And I just looked up the price for the first book on Audible, and it, I think it's around $7. So that's it's pretty reasonable for two hours worth of entertainment. And, you know, it's basically a matinee movie price. So, yeah. Oh, and by the way, for anybody that does have Audible, I'm going to give you two Audible hacks. The first Audible hack that I have for you is if you don't have it and you want it, make sure you check out their sales um, because you can get pretty good. It's not their sales, but like their deals for new members. Um, You get a pretty good deal. Usually the first time you join up, you can usually do better than the one free credit they offer to make sure you kind of browse their website or Google Audible deals. The second one is if you have been an Audible member for a while, um, you can opt to cancel your subscription. And uh, if you do that, um, I'm sure, I think that it, it would obviously cap out at some point. But I was thinking about leaving Audible and they gave me a free credit or I'm sorry, a $20 credit. I forget the one time they gave me a free credit and then the next time they gave me a $20 credit uh, toward toward the website to get me to stay so you know you can always check that out if you if you are tight on money or whatever and uh, you don't want to cancel just be aware that uh, you could still kind of get a free credit that way and prolong the membership a little bit longer so there are my 
audible hacks for you. But, uh, but yeah, definitely check them out. They're very inexpensive compared to most books. And, um, you might even be able to look up the second book. I don't know if it's free. I got it for free as a promotion when I downloaded the app. So it, I'm not sure if it's free or not anymore. But I, I know I got them free because I had bought in the, the limited edition books and it came with the free Audible credit. But I don't remember if... Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm going to look that up. So... What do you think about the plot line of this camera that can see into the future? What did you think about that part of it? I thought it was um, I thought it was smart of him to acknowledge that there were issues in science, like saying how the Earth rotates and how you know even if you were to travel through time or take a picture in any one given place, if you were to look at it scientifically. You know, you wouldn't be getting the picture that you want because the Earth would be in a different location in space, uh, you know, when you're taking the picture as opposed to when it actually happened. So for those of you that don't know the concept, basically they developed this camera that can take pictures of, uh, you know, anything that happened in that place beforehand. So, um, you know, the, the main thing is the scientist who came up with the idea basically stole the camera from the person who was paying him to produce it and went to Jerusalem to take a picture of Christ because he was a scientist and a Christian and he wanted to get proof to uh, you know, show that Christ was real and to basically vindicate his faith amidst his field of um, generally atheists. So it was a cool idea. I like that there was mystery to it and that he just acknowledged, Hey, you know, in the book, Monica, the woman is just like, we don't really know how it works. We just know that it does work. And we did a lot of tests with it. And, um, the guy who took the camera was the only one who actually knew how it worked. So that's why they had to go after him because they had blueprints and stuff, but they couldn't, it didn't matter because they didn't know how to do it. And the way that Steven and his aspects go about, getting intel on the guy is uh, really cool. It's really, really smart the way that he approaches things. So um, I really liked it. I like the, the plot line. I like the storyline. Uh, what about you? What did you think, Daniel? Uh, I thought that was pretty cool. The, I wasn't, ex- I didn't know what to expect when I first bought the book, but the whole thing about someone building a, camera that can look into the past was really cool and then i thought oh man you could i think one of the things as i remember that i thought was oh man you could try to take a picture of jesus and then that's what someone ended up doing in the book of trying to do this and yep. i thought that was a that was pretty interesting because it was something that i would have tried to do possibly and that's what the characters in the book did yeah, I really, I really like uh, Brandon Sanderson, the Mormon that he is, uh, and just kind of, you know, seeing him write a book about. And I mean, obviously, there's overlap because Mormonism, you know, basically is a perversion of Christianity, to put it bluntly. But uh, so he has a stake in who Christ is, in a sense, too. But uh, to see him write primarily about, uh, you know, somebody trying to vindicate Christianity. I thought I thought was interesting knowing he was a Mormon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is it is interesting in that regard. So the I just looked up the the price for the second book and it looks like it's fifteen dollars. Uh-huh. So it's not too much more. But yeah, the uh I liked that plot line and the the idea of someone doing that. It, it seemed like the natural progression of if someone actually made a camera that could look in the, into the past. And I think when Sanderson writes a lot of his books, they do seem to have the expected out, you know, the expected plot progression. But then at the same time, he's able to throw things in that you might not expect or do it in a way that you weren't, you didn't think it would go so that you're not just guessing what's going to happen by the end of the book. Right. 
one of the things that I think is kind of funny, uh, just from having listened to some of his lectures from Brigham Young University, because he teaches a class on creative writing, is there? I, you sent me the links to the course actually, and um, he has a class where he talks about the average man or the common man, and um, it's funny because he kind of talks about like Sherlock Holmes, where you know if you look at the books, which are phenomenal by the way, check out the books. The BBC show is great. The movies are good, but the books are just great, phenomenal. Anyway, um, basically, they they really kind of dumb Watson down for you in in the movie adaptation and even in the BBC adaptation. Basically, and Sanderson talks about it as, you know, they want to make these Watson more relatable because you have the super genius that, you know, maybe one percent of the population can identify with, if that and then you have, you know, somebody else and you want to make that person relatable to to people because then more people basically are interested in the book or can and can, you know, invest more into the book. Even with Lord of the Rings, like if you check that book out, you know, Faramir was toned down quite a bit. Even Aragorn, I think probably more than anybody, uh, got got nerfed quite a bit from the book to the movies. Um, and if you don't know if you've never read the books, Aragorn is just so much cooler, so much cooler in the books than the movies. So anyway, um, but uh, you're probably more familiar with the, the real terminology and, and the concepts than I am. So why don't you, can you give us your thoughts kind of on that and what he did? Cause like, it's cool because Steven Leeds is the Watson. He is the mm-hmm. average man. He's also the geniuses yeah i was i was gonna actually say that same thing when you apply it to legion he is this common man that you're supposed to relate to he's the protagonist that you're learning about the world through so in screenwriting there is the idea that there's this protagonist and for you know science fiction and fantasy movies that you don't have a context for you don't understand the world you don't know how it works you need someone like a luke skywalker or uh the uh the main character from the 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 movies from the books aragon you need someone that has to learn about this world and you have to learn through their eyes and that also works in fiction but you don't necessarily have to do it in fiction for example the uh, books by Steven Erickson, the Malazan books, they're really uh, a steep learning curve, so to speak, of, you know, you just kind of get thrust into the world and you have to figure it out as it goes along. But that's why in a lot of these books you have a character that's learning how to do something. Uh, in Patrick Rothfuss's books you have Kvothe starting out and he has to learn about magic. He doesn't just know it right away. He has to go through this school and learn about it. And at the same time, you're learning about it and you're seeing the rules. And that, that, uh, every man is, you're not only relating to them, but in a world, in a book where there's magic or, you know, super geniuses with split personalities and all this stuff, you need someone to sort of have an anchor in reality. A lot of the time, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So what point are you at in the second book? So in the second book, kind of a rundown of that, spoiler alert, you find, I think you start out with, and he's like in this date, and it just gets really awkward really fast and i think the reader i'm surprised that ivy didn't put it together first she knew something was up but i think most readers can kind of figure out that his his blind date is like kind of recording him and you know she's basically there for you know a news story Mm -hmm. for some network or whatever and he just has this really awkward conversation where he tells her about jc and how he thinks that somebody's there to hurt them and or something like that and then she's like all right i'm done goodbye and uh the woman jc thought was an assassin kind of leaves before he leaves with half a plate of food and um so he basically goes back to his home he gets contacted i i think his name is yao i could be wrong about that but um he's some guy he's worked with before he's the guy who throws the popsicle the ivy 
and um, he kind of basically tricks Steven into getting entangled in this big um, mess of a situation that he's in. I, I can't really explain it too well because I don't really understand it too much yet. But um, basically, the part that I got to was he he pulled um, one of his aspects with him. So he, he usually has those three with him and he, and he might take one more maybe with him. And um, do you remember the name of that aspect? It was the one who asked for a dog. I don't recall. Was it Audrey, possibly? Audrey, yes. And she, I think she's one of his first aspects, and she's like the more down-to-earth one. Um, and he, he enjoys her company, but basically um, she she says she's going to hack the assassin. And so, really interesting, I work uh, in a call center for an insurance company that I will not name. But... Um, you have seen us on TV. Anyway, working at a call center um, kind of gave me a unique appreciation for this uh, on the importance of security and privacy. Um, because basically, she called the re- she had Stephen call the restaurant and say, "Hey, you know, my wife paid with a business card. I want to use a personal account." And um, he ended up getting the last four digits of the credit card from. Um, from the the restaurant and then he called the card company because you can trace those cards pretty easily i think he might have even gotten the the card company and then he pretended to be the husband and he couldn't provide any information because everything was under his wife's name so to speak and um he basically got the guy over the phone to give him uh the phone number they had on file for the card owner because he said it was his wife and he wanted to check the number they had on file for whatever reason. And so um, he ended up, you know, basically through these, through, through phishing with a PH, he ended up uh, getting the assassin's information and finding out that uh, the assassin was tailing him because he called the assassin, uh, making it look like another phone number. And then they honked the horn of the car they were in. So I thought that was a really, really intelligent way to go about these things and I think the most impressive thing for me to think about is the fact that you know just this average Joe writer guy is coming up with like these really clever theories on a regular basis mm-hmm. like if I was Brandon Sanderson I would just be okay what what does a genius think like what does <laughs> a genius do to problem solve and um, you know it, I think that's pretty impressive the way he understands those things and, and and um, fleshes them out. So that's where I'm at. They just found out the assassin is tailing them, but they don't know a why. Nice. Yeah, and, and that whole fishing thing, I remember a, a few months ago, there's a YouTuber, Boogie2988, and he got fished basically in a similar way where they got a certain piece of information and then they were able to use that to uh, get his, his uh, personal phone number and then actually take control of his number and make it go to their phone and all this crazy stuff and then he was then they were able to do that to take that and hack his youtube and it's just uh, the links that people will go to to get this information is is pretty intense sometimes you have no idea (laughs) fraud happens every day um you know multiple times by the way, just as a little bit of insurance advice for you, it, this might vary from state to state, but in certain states, just so you are aware, if you have your identity stolen and you ha- and you were to – let's say your identity was stolen two months ago. You bought identity theft insurance last week and you didn't know that your identity was stolen. Um, if you found out you know, a week after you bought – the identity theft insurance or whatever in some states they have uh, the law set up so that it doesn't matter when your identity was actually stolen just that when you found out you have the identity theft insurance and that doesn't reimburse you for anything that was like specifically taken from you in cash per se but that will help pay for the expenses to 
make your identity secure again, which can be quite expensive. So fun, fun insurance factoid for you. It may be a good idea to get identity theft prevention. Yeah, especially, uh, coverage, especially so, now with recovery. Yeah, especially now with uh, with the, just the prevalence of of uh, how much we, we put our information on so for to so many different companies have our information and they're all not secure and hackers are routinely hacking these things and putting this information out. And, you know, you can even just look at the last presidential election. Hackers got into unsecured uh, email accounts and got all this information and put it out there. So, uh, just yeah, it's kind of crazy. And it would be interesting. I don't know of any books that really have dealt too much with that, but I'm sure there are some out there about hackers getting information like that. Yeah. Information is definitely important. Protect it. Anyway, I don't know how we got there. I apologize. <laughs> so, but yeah. Well, that's the thing about good books. They don't just uh, cause you to talk about them, but also about their ramifications and the things they're talking about in the real, in the real world. That's true. That, that is a very good point. And um, that's the thing with Sanderson. I think that there's... Um, Oh, Audrey or whatever her name her name is. Um, she, I think she's the one who is a handwriting expert, also. Yes. And so, um, I is that um, what it's not um, it starts with a G, I think. Is it like glyphology or something? I don't, I don't know. Anyway, um, I always thought that that um, science was very interesting, and so reading about you know how Audrey used you know her knowledge to ascertain you know from the first book if the person who wrote the letter was the person basically it was a fake situation um and she was able to uh double basically cross the information she had from the person's hand sample to the to the letter that he claimed his girlfriend wrote so um lots of cool stuff if you know just the a lot of knowledge in those books that uh, might pique your interest. Yeah, there's a lot of different uh, cool little factoids and things like that in them. Uh, I'm glad that I was able to sort of keep you from hating Brandon Sanderson by jumping into his most uh, sort of not beginner-friendly book. Uh, so I'm glad that Legion was able to sort of pull you back and say, no, he, he's really good. It's not just this really dense crazy epic fantasy but yeah yep and uh, i knew he wasn't because he is so beloved in in the fiction community and so well it's actually it's actually i don't know it was just it's funny you were watching his his lectures before you'd really read anything by him and you're like oh man this guy's really insightful and and all this stuff. And I had another friend that I, that was uh, a writer and he, I, I recommended he listened to those Brandon Sanderson lectures as well. And he hadn't read any Brandon Sanderson. And he said, man, this guy's really insightful and good. And, and then uh, it was funny to see that reaction from people that haven't read his stuff and don't have the sort of built in respect for him, but still can recognize, Oh man, he does have a lot to say about this stuff. And then you can see where he applies the information that he's teaching to his own work. Oh, yeah. It's obvious. Anybody that listens to him for more than five seconds knows that he is a master in his craft. And uh, he's not one of those people that it's like, oh, if he can't do teach. No, he can he can do and he teaches. So he uh, quite good. There is uh, a movement sort of in some areas of academia to appreciate fantasy and science fiction literature with Brandon Sanderson having that teaching that class at BYU that's one of them that class was taught prior to that by uh, a writer Dave Wolverton who writes science fiction and fantasy and then you have uh, Corey Olson who goes by the name of the Tolkien professor who has uh, started a university that offers degrees in Tolkien studies and they read all kinds of different fantasy and they read them seriously and critically. And it is good to see 
the sort of genre fiction come back into uh, a critical eye and people taking it seriously again and not just writing it off. And I wonder if that will continue to move forward or not. Yeah, I would love to see it progress. I mean, anything that's promoting uh, the science fiction and fantasy genres, just because um, it is so important for us to, I'm not saying live in fantasy worlds, but we can learn so much from fantasy. I mean, I'm hesitant to say that, you know, a, a, a fantasy book can help me understand my theology better. Because I feel like the, I feel like that's moving toward dangerous ground. I've heard people make the argument that um, certain fiction books have helped them understand atonement better and helped them understand the concepts, um, certain doctrinal concepts better, which, you know, I get. And, and I'm not saying that's wrong. I certainly think that reading fiction, um, especially by other Christians like um, Jonathan Renshaw or Ted Decker, for example, you know, will give you um, maybe more pointed ways and analogies to to express these things. And so I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that. I don't know. How do you feel about that? Uh, I, I think there, there's been times in my life where I've been thinking about a biblical concept or possibly struggling with it and then having an illustration from a. Uh, a fictional work used to sort of give me a better perspective on that. And actually one of the most interesting ones was uh, I had been struggling with the Bible's teaching on predestination. And what I was reading was not jiving with what I had been brought up with. And I was like, man, the Bible doesn't really teach this, does it? And, but it, it sure seemed like it did. And then I watched a video where, uh, Paul Washer, who's a missionary and pastor, he was a young man came up to him and said, I, I'm struggling with predestination. And I, you know, I, I what what can I do to to stop struggling with this and to see it in scripture? And Paul Washer talked to him for a little bit, and then he said he started using the Lord of the Rings as an illustration to talk about total depravity, the idea that man is uh, touched in every part of his being by sin and he's affected in that way and he cannot come to God unless God uh, changes his heart. And he used the orcs as an example of that. He said, when Aragorn and the heroes kill the orcs, you cheer because they're evil. They are evil. They're just pure evil. And he said, the problem is you don't think men are and I, right then is when I finally like broke through because I had this concept and I understood like, yeah, they're evil. And I don't think I'm evil, but I am that totally touched by sin. So I, I think that those things can help. Obviously, they can go too far. Some people are uncomfortable with uh, some of the stuff that C.S. Lewis wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia. And it doesn't personally bother me. But if someone's conscience is affected by those those certain things, then I, I would caution them to, to not read them. But I do think that science fiction and fantasy can help to not only clarify the world around us, but also to sort of compel us to do better in the future, to create more and to uh, study science and to move forward and do these things to the glory of God. So... No, I, I totally agree. Um, I love that video. I am a, I am a huge Paul Washer fan. Um, man, I have listened to more, more hours of, of him preach than probably anybody else. And um, he preached a couple messages on marriage. Um, if you ever get a chance, look them up. I don't know their names, but they were a two-part series at a church for a conference. Anyway, um, that example when he's talking to that college student, and he, and he brought up the orcs, and I was like, I, I just started going crazy. I was like, yes, finally, Lord of the Rings in an illustration yeah, about right? the Bible. It was perfect. Because it's usually the Chronicles of Narnia, and I get it. 
it makes sense that everybody goes to Narnia because everybody is basically I mean there comes a certain point when like David Peter becomes a warrior and he fights on his own but it's only through Aslan's power but basically they only ever win when Aslan shows up and I get it and that's why in a lot of ways the Chronicles of Narnia is you know a really awesome story too because the characters in and of themselves are not special they're not the awesome heroes that like Aragon uh, and Leg or Aragorn rather and Legolas are they are just regular kids from this place that were given their abilities and, and their strengths by Aslan and then you know without him showing up they fail mm-hmm. they would fail and so I love that but at the same time I, I just am a Lord of the Rings uh, fanatic and so to, to hear my, my you know the guy who inspires me to be the most like God reference uh, Lord of the Rings I just I went nuts um, anyway <laughs> I'm cool with that I, I, <laughs> I digress but um, I'm totally cool with that and using an illustration from a movie or a book um, it's just when people and again you know maybe I'm stingy which makes sense I am pretty conservative but um, when people start to say, you know, I understand doctrine better because of a book, I, I don't know. Maybe it's a semantic thing. Anyway, good stuff. Yeah, so we've kind of touched on uh, a lot of different things today, but I think we've had a, a good discussion not only of of uh, Brandon Sanderson's book Legion, but also uh, some other interesting stuff. So, what? Uh, any ideas what we're going to talk about next week? I kind of want to talk about the Chronicles of Narnia now. Um, <laughs> just because it is such unique... I mean, if you think about it, really, how many other stories have characters that are utterly dependent upon other people for their success? Mm-hmm. I mean, usually the point of a story is to have you know the heroes be the heroes. But in those books... It, it's you know the heroes are just people reliant upon the true hero upon the one who they need to save them and so i think that those books have a unique and maybe there's other books like that that i'm just not as familiar with and i'm sure there are but i mean when you think on average i don't think that's the norm so if you want to talk about those i mean i think we've we've both read both of them um what do you think yeah that that could be a cool topic, and I know uh, maybe we can get a special uh, guest on the show with us that is uh, quite knowledgeable about the uh, both Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings, and he might be interesting to get on, but we'll have to see. That'd be great. Yeah. Which, uh, just out of curiosity, which book is your favorite of the uh, Narnia books? Oh, so I sort of have two favorites. Obviously, I have to say The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe because I think it's the best book that he wrote in the series. But my favorite outside of that is The Silver Chair. Okay. What about you? <laughs> um, I really like The Magician's Nephew. I like kind of how it all came to be. and um, I. But my favorite is actually The Horse and His Boy. Oof, that's my least I favorite. I <laughs> Well, Silver chair is my least favorite. Well, <laughs> total opposites here, but no, it'll we be, can talk about why. Yeah, it'll be fun to talk about and, why we uh, don't like those it. books. Mm-hmm. All right, well, we will right. see you guys again next week. All right, thanks so much for listening. In.